everyone. Welcome to the conclusion of Isolated Incident, a three-part podcast series on the HIV epidemic in Cuba. My name is Morris Fabri. I'm a master's student at Duke University, and I wrote these podcasts based on interviews with 40 Cuban people connected to the HIV epidemic. These interviews were conducted by my advisor, Dr. Kersley Stewart, and two Cuban research assistants in 2012 and 2013. As a reminder, I have changed participants' names and names used in quotes to protect the confidentiality of informants. All the quotes I use in this podcast are read by voice actors. In previous episodes, you've heard me talk a lot about the past. In our first episode, I gave an overview of the history of HIV in Cuba, tying in key events in Cuban history to explain why the government was willing and able to isolate HIV-positive people in sanatoria. Then, I pieced together how Cuba's health system transitioned from a model based on disease containment to one based on prevention. In episode two, I focused on the decade or so long period at the beginning of the epidemic, when sanatorium stays were compulsory. Dr. Stewart's interviewees gave voice to the benefits and the drawbacks of isolation. Today, I will turn my gaze to the present, where ethical and policy questions still abound decades after the end of the mandatory sanatorium era. According to the most recent World Health Organization numbers, Cuba boasts an HIV prevalence of 0.2% and an AIDS mortality rate of 2.6 per 100,000 people. Their HIV program earns plaudits from the international community. In 2015, the WHO recognized Cuba as the first country to eliminate mother-to-child transmission of HIV. Thanks to its robust biotechnology sector, Cuba can provide comprehensive medical care to everyone with HIV, including domestically manufactured antiretroviral drugs. The Ministry of Health embraces an intersectoral approach to prevention, combining government entities with local organizations and hordes of volunteers to bring prevention and advocacy to communities around the country. Cuba also receives assistance from the United Nations Global Fund to Fight AIDS. As I mentioned in our first podcast, peer-to-peer education plays a vital role throughout Cuba's HIV program. For example, people with HIV help counsel victims at the moment of diagnosis. They run anonymous phone counseling lines. An activist group of men who have sex with men distributes information and condoms at popular gay gathering sites. That activist group is known as El Proyecto HSH, or the Project for Men Who Have Sex With Men, and it is the linchpin of Cuba's outreach into the gay community. The initiative involves over 5,000 community volunteers around the country. Here's how one volunteer describes the advantages of community outreach. When we have an audience of men who have sex with men, who are gay, when the majority is homosexuals, we are more direct because we can speak about the behaviors of homosexuals in relation to anal intercourse, oral sex, everything that can be done because everything is valid. Nothing is questionable, but those sexual behaviors are related to ways of protection. And sometimes we limit ourselves and we speak in a general way when we have a general public and we don't deal with very critical topics. Jose, whom we heard from last episode, credits the Aceace project with slowing the epidemic after the sanatoria faded from use. Project members sometimes went above and beyond what was asked of them, and I'll let him describe that here. So we tried to keep both, those formal places for meeting, 
and we also kept going to places where homosexuals got together. The most challenging places were the places where people go to have sex, but we also went there to give out condoms. Going there was a possibility, and this might sound weird and disgusting, to really check whether they were using condoms or not. Even though it was weird, it was our way of knowing whether the condoms that were bought or the condoms that were given out for free were really being used because we also knew that there were people who got free condoms and then sold them to heterosexual people because the condoms that were given out by prevention groups were better quality than the regular condom that you get at the drugstore. Despite activist ingenuity, or whatever term you'd use, at the time of the interviews, Cuba was seeing a plateau in the incidence of new HIV infections. Connor Gorey has written about HIV for Medic with two C's, a nonprofit organization that promotes collaboration between Cuba, the United States, and global health systems. In a 2018 overview of Cuba's HIV program, she identified prejudice toward men who have sex with men and people with HIV, diminished risk perception, logistical problems with decentralizing HIV care, and scarcity of resources as areas for improvement. In this podcast, we're going to dive into the interviews to unpack how Gori's account maps onto the lived experiences of Cubans connected to the epidemic. We'll start by piecing together a snapshot of gay life and the dialogue around gay marriage in Cuba, a discussion that inevitably intertwines with HIV, as the majority of Cubans with HIV are men who have sex with men. Gori's article features a survey of opinions reflecting prejudice toward men who have sex with men, and the results are pretty dire. 63% of men responding and 32% of women express severe or moderate prejudice against men who have sex with men. Now remember, in some respects, Cuba is ahead of the curve with policy around the LGBTI community. Mariela Castro runs Senesex, Cuba's national center for sex education. As the daughter of first secretary of the Communist Party of Cuba, Raul Castro, which makes her Fidel's niece, Mariela wields considerable clout within the government, and she's used her position to push for LGBT equality. Thanks to her advocacy, Cuba has offered sex reassignment surgery free of charge since 2008. In 2018, Cuba also passed legislation that barred private businesses from discriminating based on gender or sexual orientation. But it seems that while the government leads a drive for acceptance of sexual diversity, popular opinion lags behind. While that's a narrative the Cuban government might like to promote, the reality may be more complex. Here's what one interview participant, an HIV-negative gay rights activist, said about a digital newsletter started by a friend. It, it was a digital magazine that was divulged via email. It was sent to many email addresses. Uh, it was a magazine with information about homosexuality in Cuba and the world, about important facts such as the approval of gay marriages, different activities, and the such. There are some copies still around. You can probably see them. The name was Notig. It was published by a friend of mine from Senesex. Senesex kind of tolerated it because the newsletter published all of the Senesex activities and other pieces of news and it reached many national emails with information from the internet about homosexuality. It was meant for people with no access to the internet so that they could know what was going on in the gay world. Then it was prohibited. The person who issued the newsletter 
was told he had to stop publishing it. It was wonderful work, and we lost it. Another HIV-positive participant bemoaned the fact that state-run media campaigns to promote sexual diversity do not take gay people seriously. Sexual diversity in the media? Not at all. I told you before, it is a topic they don't discuss much. They mentioned it on May 17th, for example. Yes, the faggot who goes in a carriage, they never show two young men or two mature and serious men, normal people. May 17th is Cuba's annual day against homophobia, transphobia, and biphobia. I'll let our activist participant describe it himself. Uh, It begins with a parade along 23rd Street up to the uh, Cuban Pavilion. There the main activities take place and many gays attend. We also take the chance to do HIV tests. But the most interesting thing is the exchange and the fact that gays are given the chance to act freely this one day a year. It is a place where you can kiss another man if you want and there is no problem. A place where you can fag it around freely and shout down with homophobia, long live gays, whatever comes to your mind. It is a public activity so that people know that gays exist and that we want our space. According to Senesex, Cuba canceled their official Day Against Homophobia in 2019 due to international and regional tensions. The tensions they cite begin the previous year when, in response to protests from evangelical groups, Cuba removed language from their new constitution that would have changed the legal definition of marriage to the union of two people as opposed to being between a man and a woman. Cuba's National Assembly essentially deferred a decision on gay marriage for a couple years until the update of the Family Code, a historically more conservative document that deals with matters of marriage, divorce, relationships, and children. One Cuban medical doctor and gay rights activist who helped found the Day Against Homophobia writes that there was more to Cuba's decision than a response to popular protest. In a blog he wrote in May 2019, this doctor insinuated that the Cuban government conceded the gay marriage debate to the Catholic Church because of the mediating role that the Church plays in re-establishing diplomatic relations with the United States. When I asked them about it in August, Jose and Elena, Dr. Stewart's former research assistants, both drew attention to the fact that evangelical groups were allowed to protest freely while gay people still struggle to claim public space. Viewed charitably, this points to a government that's willing to compromise on issues of LGBT rights. But the likely reality is that there's still plenty of homophobia within Communist Party leadership. The Cuban movement for gay rights has developed alongside the HIV epidemic. As HIV spread predominantly among men who had sex with men, it shed light on damage done to public health by policies that reinforced certain sexual taboos. When LGBT people can't be gay in public, gay life moves underground to avoid scrutiny. Pervasive institutional homophobia prevents the Ministry of Public Health from delivering prevention information and materials directly to gay populations. Jose even mentioned that officially sanctioned Proyecto HSH outreach encounters resistance from police. Gay people have every reason to be skeptical of initiatives put forth by a state that doesn't respect them 
From the very beginning of the epidemic, Cuba's response has relied on a program of data collection unmatched in any other country. Cuba still administers around 2 million annual HIV tests and still traces the sexual contacts of people with HIV because the state feels a responsibility to act as a benevolent, all-seeing force for public and social good. They want to find people with HIV, ensure they live properly and adhere to their medications, and prevent them from spreading the disease. Gori, in her article, brings up a worrying trend. In 2010, 25% of AIDS-related deaths were people presenting with AIDS without a prior HIV diagnosis. The disease had already progressed too far. When homophobia leads men who have sex with men to avoid a judgmental state altogether, it creates gaps in the system in which sick people face social barriers to the care they need. Fidel Castro expressed remorse over his failure to address rampant homophobia within the Cuban Revolution. He was right to claim responsibility for Cuban attitudes. The revolutionary government has always had extensive control over what Cubans can learn and say in public. So if the state has a responsibility to represent its constituency, it also ought to be held accountable for the ways in which it shapes its constituency. On the last podcast, I praised the Cuban government for recognizing and acting on the knowledge that prevalent sexual attitudes and practices left the country vulnerable to the HIV epidemic. I praised Cuba's fast response to the reality of the situation, but over 30 years after AIDS's arrival, the government still hamstrings activist movements that would help the nation atone for its past and its present mistakes. In doing so, the state fails on two counts. It fails to promote sexual equality, and it fails in its duty to public health. Up until this point, I've used the terms gay men and men who have sex with men somewhat interchangeably. There is an important distinction to be made. Not every man who has sex with men identifies as gay. One interview participant put forth a, a statistic that somewhere around 40% of Cuban heterosexual men have had a sexual experience with a man at some point in their lives. Regardless of how accurate that is, there does seem to be a significant enough population of bisexual men in Cuba to cause an increase in HIV prevalence among older married women. Now this trend, ongoing at the time of the interviews, generated commentary from activists and epidemiologists alike. The story that became more familiar as I got deeper into my material was that married men would have affairs with men with HIV, get infected, and then pass on that disease to their wives. Some married women assumed that their partners were being faithful and thus felt no need to use a condom. Other women were too intimidated to advocate for condom use even if they were aware of their husband's infidelity, afraid that it would imply that they thought their husbands were cheating on them or that they were cheating on their husbands. Cuba's revolution emphasized equality between men and women, but paid more attention to equality in the workforce. Power disparities in the home were largely ignored. According to a 2019 report by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, Cuba doesn't have any laws recognizing domestic violence or other gender-based crimes. If everyone is treated equally under the law, why should anyone deserve any special protections? Unfortunately, legal blindness to patriarchal relationship dynamics leaves women powerless against their macho counterparts. The report says that violence against women is a problem in Cuba, that Cuban women chronically underreport violence in their homes, and that women often lack protection from violence in family courts. 
Cuba's Project for Women with HIV offers workshops to help women in relationships negotiate the use of condoms. In 2013, Jose interviewed the director of training for HEPESIDA, or GPSIDA, the educational group started by HIV-positive sanatorium residents in the 1980s, which now trains health promoters around the country. Here's what that director had to say about the difficulties of changing behavior within a macho landscape. It's very difficult for a Cuban woman who's also very male chauvinist to strike out a dialogue with her couple in terms of bisexual sexual relations. That's very difficult to find in our country because the Cuban woman is also very male chauvinist. She was also taught to be a housewife, a good wife, everything we're taught since we're girls, that we dress in pink and boys in blue. However, we were not told about sexuality. Maybe they didn't speak with us about the private matters of sexuality. Maybe when we were little girls, we were not taught to be able to speak with our couple and maybe tell them where we like most to be touched and what eroticizes us the most. And we deem that to be a vulgarism, like an aberration. And that can result in several barriers in the relationship. I don't mean that the fact that you can be more open-minded with your couple can change your couple's sexual orientation or preference, but maybe you'll be happier as a woman and finding out about being betrayed will not harm you so much, or at least you'll defend more your space as a person, and that is what we're doing today, working very hard on the topic of gender to work on the prevention of HIV AIDS with a gender approach in such a way that women are able to know what the things that have a bigger impact on women are, but also to understand a bit about masculinities and the reason why they influence on the epidemics of HIV-AIDS. In that way, from their experience, they can strike out the dialogue with their couples. And I don't, wanna, I don't want my couple to tell me that he has a homosexual relationship, but what I want is that if he is going to have a relationship on the street, either homosexual or not, I want him to protect himself so that he looks after me. My first thought when I read her interview was that the premise behind the policy was unfair. Why should women be responsible for managing their philandering husbands? Shouldn't promoters instead lecture men to stay faithful and to wear condoms? At a certain point, though, prevention workers accept that Cuban men of a certain age are kind of a lost cause. They've already progressed through their formative years with only limited pushback on culturally embedded machismo. While promoters do try to preach prevention at the workplace, their messages only have limited efficacy. Surveys show that Cubans use more condoms now than ever before. In 2017, 44.5% of adults in stable relationships between the ages of 15 and 49 reported condom use. That rate's almost four times higher than it was in 2001. A shift to prevention and sex education has found greater purchase with Cuban youth. But even if Cuba is making progress towards safe sex, Promoters work to stop disease spread in the present, in which they must tailor their approach to the reality of people stuck in old, unsafe, and chauvinistic ways. The Project for Men Who Have Sex With Men and the Project for Women modify their approaches to adjust to rules and norms that impede prevention work. But these groups can only reach people who are willing to listen to them. Outreach through religion extends the range of HIV education to people who would otherwise avoid the public sphere. Some participants spoke about Afroache, an organization with the dual goals of improving the quality of life for people with HIV and raising awareness of the disease among practitioners of Santeria, an an Afro-Cuban religion. 
Afroache was inspired by a similar group in Brazil who shared their idea at an international event. Elena called Santeria a religion of the people, one based on acceptance and inclusivity. It's a community in which gay people could and did take part. It's also a religion that, unlike Catholicism, is not ideologically opposed to condom use. I was told that Santeria, while it doesn't discriminate in theory, uh, many high priests called Babalaos and second-tier religious figures called Oriates are homophobic people. So Afroache informs Babalaos and Oriates about the risk of HIV so that they can use their religious foresight and their knowledge of their communities to alert people with risky sexual behaviors that they're at risk for HIV infection. Cuban Santeria is centered in Regla, a municipality hit hard by HIV. Participants told me that Santeros, who were infected, underwent a crisis of faith. They believed that by being consecrated in the religion, by listening to the advice of their babalaos, they should have been protected from HIV. One participant attributes these mistakes to both a lack of awareness and to taboos around sexuality and homosexuality. Babalaos, who should have issued warnings, were blocked by their reluctance to discuss sexuality and homosexuality. It's not easy to make people unlearn their bigotry, and many Babalaos rejected Afroache's outreach at first. One participant tells the story of a Babalao who wore gloves to cut his hair during consecration into Santeria. That same Babalao later made a rude joke about the participant's status as a gay man. Another gay male participant left Santeria altogether because he was, quote, disappointed with the people who practiced that culture, end quote. However, Babalaos, who are exclusively male, have a responsibility to advise their communities. Even if this duty put them in conflict with their macho upbringings, they couldn't just ignore a spreading HIV epidemic. Afroache's work resonates because it delivers information to people in their language, on their terms. Religious leaders are able to deliver life advice in ways that people understand. Practitioners also take them seriously. Some will disclose secrets to their religious godfathers that they wouldn't tell their families. Some come to their godfathers with health problems before they see a doctor. Afroache's goal is to get these godfathers to send people to their doctors. Surveys taken before and afro Afroache interventions reveal that their messages do take hold, combining science-informed practices with familiar religious messaging to effectively dispel myths about HIV. Through a sociocultural approach, people who don't associate with the groups of people Cuba targets for intervention, like men who have sex with men, or sex workers, or travelers, who still have risky sexual practices, can still be put in touch with resources that can help them. As of 2013, Afroache was the only religious HIV prevention project in Cuba that received support from the government. Like the project for men who have sex with men, this support comes with strings that limit its effectiveness. One participant took issue when the government censored an informational brochure that he designed. I think first, it's a political and governmental thing. They don't want any religious group doing promotion, so you need to convince the government, I'm not promoting religion, I'm promoting prevention. But still, we have a lot of battles for the designing of posters, because you can say you can't use this word, you can't use this, you can't use this. And it's not attractive for, I think I explained this yesterday, if you want to make a brochure that people keep and read, it has to be interesting. It has to be something that attracts my attention. It's a huge contradiction. Santeria is very attractive for people who don't know anything about that. 
So for people who know it, it is more attractive. When we have an activity on the street for all of the projects and the Afro Ache builds the place, the staff, everybody goes there because it's attractive. Visually, it's attractive. And I want that in my brochures. I want that when you have this paper, you say, oh, what is this? I want something drawing your attention. The Cuban government places a high priority on its health system, but sometimes health promotion activities conflict with other national priorities. While I've been making these podcasts, I've chewed on this one quote that I think says a lot about Cuba's health system. It comes from a talk one of the participants gave at a U.S. university. The participant is a provincial coordinator of the Project of Support to People Who Live with AIDS, an arm of the National Prevention Center that operates under guidance from Cuba's Ministry of Public Health. During this talk, he says, Well, look, from our point of view, each person is responsible for his own health, although in Cuba, the Ministry of Public Health sort of tries to influence with regards to this, and we do everything possible, and the impossible as well, to take care of others' health. So, that's the quote. Everyone is responsible for his own health, but the state is going to do everything it can to take care of your health. If it sounds confusing, I'll let another interview participant who works for the National Prevention Center at a provincial level explain how that works. What I do about adherence is to go to the pharmacy because I have them separated, even by polyclinics, international medicines, national medicines. What I have is an impressive breakdown that can be understood only by me, and I give everybody the people who are not adhering to the treatment in the month. On the first day of every month, I go to the pharmacy and I collect the names of those who did not pick up the medicines. I give them to every coordinator of polyclinics for them to visit those patients along with their survey takers to see why they stopped taking the medicine. If you're not taking your antiretrovirals, the government will send someone to your house. Participants who work in the prevention center speak of the data they store matter-of-factly. Technically, it's in patients' best interests to be kept on their medication regimens. Cuba can't afford top-of-the-line antiretrovirals. The generics they manufacture have side effects like diarrhea, neuropathy, rashes, and lipodystrophy, an abnormal distribution of fat in the body. HIV can be deadly if it's not treated, but people don't feel the effects of HIV until they suffer from an opportunistic infection. People with HIV feel the effects of their medication regimens on a daily basis. It's easy for individuals to lose sight of their treatment goal. A health system that has their backs can give them a stern but friendly reminder of the discipline that seropositive people owe themselves. While epidemiologists feel a duty to enforce medication adherence, they also have a duty to keep people's serostatus confidential. Here's how one participant who works with the Prevention Center describes Cuba's anonymous counseling service in which people can take HIV tests and receive counseling without entering the healthcare system. The anonymous counseling service is the same, with the only difference that the result of the test is for the person. When a person uses the service of anonymous counseling and is tested for HIV, the result is only known by the person and the counselor. For this service, the counselor needs to be even more trained, smarter, and more experienced so as to achieve that this person with a positive result continues to use the service steadily, looking for information and assistance. The counselor also tries to convince this person to join the national program and to become visible so that he can receive healthcare, see doctors, and improve the quality of his life. No, in anonymous counseling, the result is anonymous. If I am an anonymous counselor and the result of a test is positive, what I have to do is try to convince the person to return to the service, persuade him of the importance and need of having healthcare and medical checkups, and follow up of his CD4 and viral load about the importance of nutrition, adherence, and self-care. 
That is the moment when the counselor does positive prevention so that this person realizes the importance of integration to the health system. But the person can remain anonymous for as long as he wants. I have worked with people who have been anonymous for a year and then they have decided to accept healthcare. I might be reading too far into this, but I think you can kind of tell by the language he uses that he sees the decision to remain anonymous as short-sighted and capricious, a spurning of services that are in individuals' best interests. I might be reading this into his words, though, because more than a quarter of the HIV-positive participants spoke about being outed as seropositive against their wishes. When someone from the Ministry of Public Health shows up to your door in uniform, nosy neighbors start to talk. When your mother answers the phone and the voice on the other end says they're from the STD AIDS Center, she might ask questions you weren't ready or willing to answer. Doctors and nurses live in the communities they serve. They foster relationships with patients, their families, and their neighbors outside of the doctor's office. This allows for a more holistic consideration of health. But like anyone else, doctors and nurses talk about their work. They gossip. HIV-positive people who keep their disease a secret from their sexual partners are dangerous. Cuba provides universal health care to its citizens, and I think it's assumed that Cuban citizens owe something in return for this service, usually that takes the form of participation in public health programs. No one makes a ton of money off medicine in Cuba. Remember, doctors earn about $50 a month. Doctors are held in high esteem and are typically compensated for their service through gifts from the community. The state rewards loyalty to the Communist Party with gifts like toiletries and other scarce goods. In a moralized economy, those who don't do their fair share are seen as bad actors. To some degree, I think doctors and epidemiologists probably conflate the dangerous patients with the ones who just want to keep their serostatus out of the public eye. Compounding this issue is the fact that many doctors are homophobic and insensitive to the social ramifications of HIV. While healthcare personnel may pay lip service to the ideal of confidentiality, it's rarely given that high a priority in practice. There's also a public health benefit to people with HIV being visible. If people know that their friends and neighbors have HIV, the disease becomes less scary and more familiar. People can have their questions answered, their false beliefs corrected, some interview participants wear their serostatus as a badge. When one participant was asked how much time she spent on prevention work, this was her response. In fact, every day because fortunately every day I have my coworkers at the pharmacy who know I am a person living with HIV and there is always someone who has a question and whom do they ask? Every day in this world I give a lecture either on adherence, maternity or paternity or transmission ways. A couple participants referenced a common slogan about AIDS, that AIDS has no face. The slogan is meant to put people on guard, notifying them that protection and vigilance are paramount, that AIDS can affect anyone, whether they're rich or poor, gay or straight, etc. The participants' response was that no, AIDS has a face. It's my face. The seropositive people who stock Cuba's army of volunteer promoters serve as ambassadors for their communities, informing and protecting the public while preventing the alienation of victims. Some frame their work as an obligation both to improve the quality of life of people like them and to prevent other people from suffering the same fate. But it's not hard to imagine enthusiasm for prevention waning if everyone with HIV was forced to bear the full social burden of their diagnosis. In addition to its value as a human right in and of itself, I think confidentiality is also instrumental 
in that it imbues the decision to adopt a marginal identity with courage and solidarity. Questions of identity recur throughout participants' narratives about HIV. On one hand, participants express a desire to normalize HIV, to see it treated the way we treat any chronic disease or any STD. On the other hand, people with HIV have special nutritional and medical needs. They're also targets for discrimination. There's not much legislation directed specifically toward protecting people with HIV outside of a sometimes enforced right to return to the workplace and a stipulation that they get paid sick leave to attend medical appointments. The prevention center coordinator who had that line about responsibility explains why he thinks that's a good thing. If I have to stand in a line, I prefer to do it with the general public. I don't want to be discriminated against my serologic condition. When we are dealing with issues of stigma and discrimination, we have to be very careful because we, with our criteria, can participate in creating stigmas and discrimination for ourselves. We don't want special laws for HIV sufferers to exist, unless it is something that relates to the rights of all Cubans. Although Cubans with HIV don't have many legal protections, they're still allowed more leeway to organize than other populations because of their role in maintaining a low prevalence rate that's a point of national pride. Take, for example, the Havana Community Drug Store, an invention of the mutual support teams of people with HIV. At some point in time, the mutual help teams were in need due to the lack of some medicines. And when I say medicines, I mean any type of medicines, not only the retroviral treatments. Then, sometimes, there were some medicine shortages, and we had to track it down to find out where to get a given medicine. And one of the board members came up with the idea of setting up a community drugstore where every person, once his treatment was changed, or when he had some medicine he was not taking, he would leave it in a given house with a phone for everybody to know the place and the event. Some of the, event, some of the members needed a given medicine. He could know where to go, where to locate it. If that medicine were not there at the community drugstore, then the mutual help teams immediately take active steps, and through relatives, some friend, we focus on the medicine that that person really needs at the moment. Is that, strictly speaking, legal? I don't know, but what I do know is that Cuba lets mutual support teams operate with self-funded freedom to encourage that kind of solidarity and ingenuity. Before bringing this series to an end, I want to make a couple things clear. First, I want to reiterate that while the focus of this podcast is on Cuba, questions of confidentiality, visibility, and identity follow HIV and people with HIV around the world. The problems of patriarchy and sexual puritanism prevail everywhere. My hope is that through analyzing the Cuban example, we can expand on strengths and flaws within the way they've addressed their specific instances of universal problems. Second, I want to stress the uncertainty inherent in tracking a disease. I mentioned earlier that Cuba's rates of diagnosing new HIV cases were holding steady around the time of the interviews. One epidemiologist saw this fact as proof that Cuba's program was working, citing an expansion of HIV screening as the reason it looked like Cuba wasn't making a dent. If you cast a wider net, you'll catch more people with HIV. Another, younger epidemiologist was skeptical, saying that Cuba was missing a more intense rise in the new incidence of HIV because vulnerable populations still weren't getting tested. So I think it's a healthy thing to be skeptical of anybody who says they have all the answers as to what works and what doesn't in containing a disease. 
Another fun fact, because Cuba came to HIV through internationalists who did their service all around the world, Cuba has more diverse strains of HIV than anywhere else in the world. It's not clear whether this has any implications for treatment, but it does raise the possibility that as people with HIV have sex, strains of the disease recombined, and people with HIV don't always adhere to their medication regimens, then Cubans might generate new, more virulent strains of HIV, strains that resist treatments, and maybe even an eventual vaccine. There are no easy answers to infectious disease. As the features of an epidemic evolve, things that worked in the past become less effective, and everyone involved needs to adapt. Based on what I've read, I think the best way to face an evolving epidemic is to engage as many people and institutions as possible, giving activists the freedom to adapt their messages so that the knowledge they have to bring to the table resonates with their audiences. Anyway, the solidarity, ingenuity, grit, elbow grease, and whatever else drives HIV activism in Cuba is as important now as it ever was in a country that still hasn't really recovered economically from the fall of the Soviet Union. In the pursuit of foreign currency, Cuba has leased 50,000 doctors around the world. These doctors count toward Cuba's remarkably low physician per population rate I mentioned earlier in our first episode without actually caring for Cuban patients. The doctors who remain are stretched thin. They don't always have fixed offices. Others lack basic measuring equipment. When I went to Cuba with my family, I saw so much untouched natural beauty that would have been covered with farms or factories in the U.S. I saw unfinished bridges and broken down buildings with exposed wiring that housed multiple families. Some would argue that these wounds are self-inflicted by fighting off private entrepreneurship in the interests of social equality and control. The state has taken on more responsibilities than it can handle. The fact that so much of the healthcare system is tied to a resource-strapped government strains even the most well-designed public health program and explains why some prevention organizations within Cuba want to detach from the government altogether. But this strain is exacerbated by the U.S. embargo. Last year, the United Nations estimated that the embargo has cost the Cuban government $130 billion over nearly six decades. In October of this year, the Trump administration banned U.S. flights to all Cuban cities except Havana to tamp down tourism to Cuba, which is still banned under U.S. law. $130 billion. That's almost two times Cuba's entire GDP. The mind boggles thinking about all the condoms, antiretroviral drugs, medical equipment, roads, housing, and food that could have been purchased with just a small fraction of that money. Cuba is no closer to regime change now than it was six decades ago. The only consequences of the sanctions is the suffering and death of Cubans. Well, actually, while undoubtedly the embargo has caused a lot of suffering to Cuban people, the impact of the embargo might not be limited to the island itself. Cuba's economic struggles in the 1990s triggered a series of Cuban migrations to the U.S. Many of these people took up residence in Miami. Cuban migrants tend to be conservative. In 2000, George W. Bush won over 80% of the Cuban-American vote, with the election hinging on the outcome in Florida. In 2003, George W. Bush launched the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief an organization that's provided over $90 billion in funding for AIDS prevention, treatment, and research worldwide. It is the largest global health program devoted to a single disease. PEPFAR, 
also feeds into the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, an organization that, as I mentioned earlier, helps fund HIV prevention in Cuba. Also, as President George W. Bush approved of torture and wars that caused massive civilian deaths. The point is, what happens in Cuba doesn't always stay in Cuba. We are talking about infectious disease, after all. One mutation, one sneeze, or one plane flight could initiate a chain reaction that reshapes the global order. In a world where knowledge is similarly viral, it doesn't make sense that people should have to dig for a four-year radio lab episode to learn about HIV in Cuba. Cuba's decision to meet AIDS with isolation was bold and innovative, and it saved lives. Cuba's health infrastructure paved the way for a marginalized group of people to redefine a disease and to redefine themselves. These stories, told by Cubans, reveal multifaceted human experiences that map onto broader, familiar questions about what we owe each other, what the state owes to us, and how states and people should regard one another. And I hope I've done them justice by sharing them with the world. That's going to do it for the series. While the music plays me out, I'd like to thank everyone who was involved in the making of these podcasts. First, the intro song you heard was Algorithms by Chad Crouch. The outro song you hear now is Super Sloppy Space Junk by Milkshake Daddy. Additional podcast music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks, as always, to Dr. Stewart for your research, your encouragement, and your mentorship. Thank you, Jose and Elena, for feeding me, housing me, and sharing your stories. These podcasts would not have happened without you. I'd like to thank my parents and my girlfriend for listening to my disorganized rants that would form the backbone of this work. I need to thank Nisha Angrist, my advisor within the program, for prompt and thorough revision that never made me sacrifice my voice. Thanks to Thomas Williams for serving on my defense and for helping me think and rethink about isolation. Thanks to Ben Shepard for your advice, your audio recording equipment, and for providing a place for these podcasts to land. Thanks to all my friends who stepped up and lent their time and their voices to this podcast on short notice. Thanks to anyone I haven't mentioned. And finally, thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at MoMoneyMoFabri. That's at MoMoneyMoFabri. Thank you.